Good morning, faith family. What an honor and a privilege it is to be able to lead us in our study of God's Word this morning. I'm very excited about it, especially as we are kicking off this new series. As Pastor Matt has mentioned, that we've entitled, Who is Like Our God? You know, that question that we're using as the title, Who is Like Our God? It gets asked a few different times in Scripture. Uh, One example is actually in Exodus 15, where we find Moses and the Israelites singing praises to God, following him, delivering them from the Egyptian army by allowing them to cross through the Red Sea on dry land. And in verse 11 of that chapter, we find this stanza as part of what they're singing in praise to God. Exodus 15, 11, they sing, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You know, here Moses and the Israelites, as they're singing that, they're asking that question of God, Lord, who is like you among the gods? But they're not actually expecting an answer in return. Because, of course, this question is a rhetorical question. The answer is already understood. In fact, when the people are asking this question of God, they're just using it to express the answer. In other words, when they sing, Lord, who is like you among the gods, what they are saying is, Lord, there is no one like you among the gods. And that, of course, has to be the answer to this question that we're using as the title of this series. Who is like our God? No one. No one is like our God. Well, why? Why is that? Why is no one like our God? Well, to kick off this series today, we're going to look at a truth about God that singularly among all his other characteristics is what sets him apart from anyone and everything else. And this truth is actually the title of today's sermon, a very simple statement that sums up a mind-blowing reality. And that is this, why is no one like our God? Because God is is triune trinity three and one a question about the trinity actually came up in my family recently when we were having a family devotion we unfortunately are not one of those families who have a family devotion every day as much as we would like to but we try to do so often and regularly in this particular time, I don't recall exactly what we were talking about, but Haven, our eight-year-old, stopped me mid-sentence at one point and asked some version of this question. Dad, what does it mean that God is the Trinity? Well, needless to say, that derailed everything else we were talking about as I did my best to try to give him some kind of answer that he could understood. My wife, Liza, actually captured a picture of me in this attempt, and I want to share it with you here. Okay, so first thing I need to do is uh, ask you to please excuse the mess in the house. Liza is, is just terrified of this, but I assure her our house just looks like a busy family lives in it, so just, you know, understand that that's the case. Now, you see, I've got the three fingers in the air, like we're in the middle of getting this three-in-one thing kind of going. Liza is taking a picture of it. So you can, that can tell you how engaged she is in whatever it is that I'm saying here. Story, our daughter at least has the Bible open in her lap, but her posture doesn't exactly communicate like eager attentiveness, like she's ready to go. But I want us to pay special attention to the face 
that Haven is making in response to whatever it is that I'm saying. We're going to give you a close-up of it. <laughs> Doesn't exactly look like that I'm getting through to him, does it? Now, the truth is, whenever it comes to discussions around the Trinity, a lot of us make faces similar to Haven's. I mean, we know that the Trinity is true. We can say that and believe that. We can even sing it enthusiastically as we've just been doing in worship a few moments ago. But if we get honest with ourselves, a lot of us are kind of left joining Haven and asking that question. What exactly does it mean that God is the Trinity? Well, today what I want us to do is kind of sit up on the couch, lean in, look to God's word together, and ask him to help us more fully comprehend what it means that he is triune, and also equip us to help the havens in our life better understand this truth as well. Because this reality that God is triune, it is vitally important to us. It is not just some stuffy doctrine. It is not just an intellectual exercise. The Trinity is the very essence of who our God is. Another way to express the reason what we're doing today is so important is actually the first fill-in-the-blank in your message notes today, and that's this. This is important for us to do today because the triune God is the Christian God. The triune God is the Christian God. This is the God we serve and worship. Just think for yourself for a moment about this question. What sets us as Christians apart from all other religions? Now, we might offer answers like, well, it's our belief in Jesus. And we might take that further. Well, it's that we believe that Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life and died in our place and then rose from the grave so that we could be saved. Or maybe we'd even say it's our doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And we could go on and on. But the reality is that there are other religions who would say that they ascribe to those very same things. Yet, they are not Christian and the way that we understand what it means to be Christian. Well, why is that? Well, it's because no matter what they might say about Jesus or about the type of salvation that exists, they just frankly don't worship the same God we do. In his book, Delighting in the Trinity, author and theologian Michael Reeves says it this way. He writes, The bedrock of our faith is nothing less than God himself. And every aspect of the gospel, creation, revelation, salvation, is only Christian insofar as it is the creation, revelation, and salvation of this God, the triune God. I could believe in the death of a man called Jesus. I could believe in his bodily resurrection. I could even believe in a salvation by grace alone. But... If I do not believe in this God, then quite simply, I am not a Christian. God is triune. The Trinity is who he is. The triune God is who created us, is who has saved us. The triune God is the God we worship and surrender our lives to. And so knowing him as Trinity is vitally important to us. It's something to be treasured, to be held dear, something to think about and to wonder at, even if it does get our head spinning and leave us looking a little dumbfounded like Haven. In fact, whenever we think about the Trinity, it makes sense 
that it would get our heads spinning and leave us looking a little dumbfounded because it means that we're thinking about God. And, it, and the reason that it makes sense that it, that kind of leaves us dumbfounded, leaves us wondering about these things a bit, is because of the next fill in the blank that you have there in your message notes. And that's this, that the triune God is holy. The triune God is holy. That, that's what Moses and the Israelites sing after they sing, Lord, who is like you among the gods. Their next line is, who is like you, glorious in holiness. Again, they're not asking this question expecting a response. They're using it to make a statement. They're saying, Lord, you are gloriously holy. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, one way to define what it means to be holy is to say that it means to be set apart. And that's true. That, that's a good definition. But I want to offer us up another one that I actually prefer. And that's that being holy means being other. Being holy means being other. Because set apart kind of has to do with the position of something, where something is located. In other words, if I take a few steps over here, then I am set apart from the podium. But holiness isn't so much concerned with the position of something, with where something is. Holiness is much more about what or who something or someone is. And so God isn't holy because he sits on a throne in heaven. Though that's true, he does. But though he sits on a throne in heaven, he has also promised to be with his people. And we also know that he is omnipresent, all places at all times. So God's holiness isn't about where he is located at any one given moment. No, God's holiness is about who he is. God is holy because he's God, he is something and someone completely other than everything and everyone else. He is not like the rest of creation. He is not like people, and there are no other gods for him to be like. He is holy. And knowing his holiness helps us when we think about the Trinity, because the Trinity is something completely other. You know, whenever we talk about it, we sometimes try to use illustrations to give us a sense of what it means to be triune. So we'll talk about water, how water can be liquid, solid, or gas, and yet it's always H2O. Uh, We'll talk about a three-leaf clover. There's three leaves of the clover, but it's just one clover. Or we'll talk about an egg. There's a yolk and the whites and the shell, and yet it's just an egg. And those illustrations can be a little helpful, but eventually they're going to break down. And the reason why is because God is not like water. He's not like a clover. And he's not like eggs. God is something else. He is other. He is holy. But having said that, his holiness doesn't mean that we can't understand that he is triune. It doesn't mean that we can't comprehend things about his triune nature. It doesn't mean that we can't know him, the triune God, because we can. And that's the next blank you have there. The triune God is knowable. The triune God is knowable. In his gospel, John has the most extensive record of things that Jesus said and did on the night before he died. It's found primarily in chapters 14 through 17 of the book of John. And 17 in particular stands out as very unique because it's an extensive prayer that Jesus offers before he goes to the cross. And I want us to just read the first few verses 
of that prayer together. So this is John 17, verses 1 through 3. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? How Jesus defines eternal life. Eternal life is that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. And this knowledge, this knowing that Jesus is talking about, it's not intellectual comprehension. It's not theological understanding. When Jesus talks about knowing God, he's talking about something that is personal. He's talking about something that is relational. He's talking about something that brings the two people together as close as they can possibly get. That's how we are to know God. And God, not only is he knowable, but us getting to know him, that's the purpose of our lives. He first breathed life into Adam and Eve so that they might know him. He grants us new life in the spirit so that we might know him. He graciously gives us eternal life with him so that we can continue to know and enjoy him forever and ever. When we speak of the Trinity, we sometimes use the word mystery. That's also appropriate. The Trinity is a mystery. But when the Bible talks about the mysteries of God, it's not talking, them, talking about them as secrets that are meant to be kept and hidden. No, they're mysteries because there's thing, they are things that we can't work out on our own, that we can't come up with the answers just left for ourselves. They're mysteries because they have to be revealed to us. And in that sense, of course, the Trinity is a mystery. Though God is holy, he did not stay set apart from us, aloof and mysterious. Rather, he came to us and made himself known so that we can know him personally and fully forever and ever. And why did he do this? Why would God do that? Well, because the triune God is love. That's your next blank. The triune God is love. You know, it's so interesting when we how we speak of all the other attributes of God, even ones we've already mentioned to say that God is holy or God is knowable. We'll also say things like God is good and God is just, God is wise, God is gracious, God is merciful, God is compassionate, all-knowing, all-powerful, majestic, glorious, all true things, all adjectives used to describe who God is. But when it comes to love, we all of a sudden change the type of word we use. Sure, we'll still use an adjective. We'll say God is loving. Scripture also says God is loving. That is true. But Scripture also uses the noun form of that word. Most famously in John's first letter, in 1 John 4, 8, John wrote, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. In other words, God is knowable. And if you know him, you will be loving because knowing him means knowing love because God is love. What kind of love is this? What kind of love is God? In the Bible, there's different words in the original languages used for love. And the one that's used here in the New Testament is the word agape. And it's specifically reserved to describe the type of love that God is. And if you were going to put descriptors with this type of love, it would be words like selfless, 
and giving and self-sacrificing love. That's the kind of love that God is, that is such an essential aspect of his character that it is said that that's who he is. He is love. For centuries, theologians have loved to compare God to a fountain in the sense that just as a fountain bursts forth and overflows with water, so God bursts forth and overflows with life and love. And since God is a triune God, that means that that love that he bursts forth and overflows with, it's always been an outwardly focused love, selfless and given to another. The Father bursts forth and overflows with love for the Son. And the Son bursts forth and overflows with love for the Father. And the Spirit of life and love, the Holy Spirit, is the recipient and the means of transference of that love between the Father and the Son. And the three all enjoy perfect fellowship and love between themselves. And since he is both triune and love, that selfless, giving outwardly focused love is what drives everything about who God is and what he does. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves by bringing up the Father, Son, and Spirit just yet. Because first we need to make sure that we're clear on this next point, and that is this. The triune God is one. The triune God is one. It is not wrong to say that we as Christians are monotheistic in the sense that we have one God. We do. It is the one true God, and he is one. There's perhaps no better place in Scripture to go to see this truth illuminated for us than in some of the early verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6, that for the Jewish people is known as the Shema. And so in Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 and 5, this is what God is revealing about himself. It reads, Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now here we have God clearly establishing his oneness. But in making this statement, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, he's actually communicating two very important distinctions. And the first one is this. There is only one God. There is only one God. You know, since God had established his covenant with Abraham, his people had lived surrounded by peoples and cultures who worshiped multiple gods. Most recently, before what's recorded here in Deuteronomy, they had lived as slaves in Egypt, surrounded by Egyptians, immersed in their culture and their pantheon of gods, gods like Ra and Osiris and Isis and Horses and, and many, many others. And so here what God is establishing in the Shema for his people is he wanted to be clear with them that there are no other gods. There is no pantheon. None of these other ones exist. There's only one God, and your God, Yahweh, he is the only one true God. So in that sense, in saying the Lord our God, the Lord is one, God is communicating a mathematic reality. There is just one in the sense that there's not two or three or 20. There's only one God. But making this statement, God's also helping his people understand something else about him. And that's this. He is one of a kind. There's only one God, but also he is one of a kind. Since his people had been surrounded by and immersed in these other cultures and religions with multiple gods, God not only wanted them to understand that all those other gods were false, that they didn't exist, that he was the only one, but he also wanted them to know he wasn't anything like them. Remember, he's holy, he's other, 
He is set apart from any of man's imaginings of what a God should be. And all these other false gods, they're conceived by the minds of humans, which means they obviously had characteristics of humankind. Another way to say that is they're created in the image of humans, but that's not our God. He is not made in our image. We are made in his. There are some ways in which we are like our God, but he is not like us. He is one of a kind. So then what kind is he? What is our God like? God knew that we would ask those questions, and he knew that it would be important for us to understand the answers. He also knew that they would be mysteries to us, things we couldn't work out on our own. He would need to reveal them to us. So how did God do that? How did he reveal to us what he is like? Well, the best way he could. He came here himself to show us and to tell us. And so if we want to know what God is like, we look to him who came. We look to Jesus. Why? Because of things we know about him, like what Paul wrote in the first chapter of Colossians in verses 15 through 20. He wrote in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In verse 17, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Or verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God before all things. The fullness of God dwells in him. Okay, then, so as we look to Jesus, what does he reveal about who God is, about what God is like? Well, again, I want us to go back to the night before he died. Even before that prayer that he prayed that we read just a small bit of a moment ago, he spent a lot of time with his disciples teaching them and preparing them for his time to leave his earthly ministry. And during that time, one of his disciples asked him a question. And the question was essentially this. Jesus, since you're going away, how are you going to make yourself known to the rest of the world like you've made yourself known to us? And in John 14, starting in verse 23, this is how Jesus answered. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Now what Jesus is beginning to help his disciples understand here is a very special role that his followers have to play. In the sense that the task of making Jesus known to the world as he's been made known to them now belongs to them. It's their task. But this wasn't a task that Jesus was just giving them and then leaving them to accomplish according to their own power. No. He wanted them to also understand that God would be with them every step of the way. Each person of God, which he directly references here. Himself, the Son, God the Father, and the Counselor, the Holy Spirit. So in other words, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, what does he reveal about what God is like? He reveals that the triune God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three in one. 
He reveals that the triune God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this isn't the only place that he does that. I mean, just another low-hanging fruit example for us is think about what we confess at the end of our worship gatherings every week in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, just as we've had the privilege of being able to do today. That is the God that Jesus reveals, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one. And God is three persons. And there are myriad things that Jesus reveals and teaches about each person of the Trinity during his earthly ministry. But there are two truths in particular that are important to understand about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in relation to their triune nature. And the first one is this. They are each fully God. They are each Father, Son, and Holy Spirit fully God. Jesus clearly identifies God as the Father. It's the primary way in which he addresses God. We've seen that in his prayer in John 17. We've seen it here in John 14. You can see it throughout the Gospels. In John 10, 30, among other places, Jesus clarifies for his followers. He says that I and the Father are one in the sense that they are the same, in the sense that they are both perfectly united in fellowship as God. Throughout John's record of the night before he died, when Jesus is teaching about the counselor, is teaching about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God sent from the Father in his name. That's how Jesus refers to him. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each fully God, not parts of God. If you ever Google the word Trinity in relation to God, and you click on kind of that image search, there's one image you're going to be bombarded with. It's called the shield of the Trinity, and it looks like this up here on the screen right here. And this is kind of helpful for us when we consider this aspect of the three and the one and them all being fully God. Because you can see there that God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit. It also works in reverse. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and vice versa. This helps us see what we're talking about here. And this truth gives us a new understanding then of God's oneness. Not only is he the only one true God, unlike any other, but he is one in the sense that these three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, while distinct, they are fully God and so united together in their love for one one another that they are one. In fact, when we talk about God's oneness, it's the same kind of oneness that's spoken of When Adam and Eve come together as man and wife, the two become one. Here we have three as one, completely united together. In fact, that's what Trinity means. It's tri plus unity. Three, so unified that there is no distinction between them in the sense that they're all one together, though they are distinct persons. And then in addition to understanding that they are each fully God, it's also important for us to grasp that they always have been and they always will be. They always have been fully God. They always will be fully God. At no point did the Son suddenly become God. At no point did the Holy Spirit spring into existence when he hadn't existed before. No, God has always, for eternity, existed as Trinity and will continue to do so. If we just look at the creation account in Genesis 1 and John 1, we see this truth. That before there's anything else... For all eternity past, we see God the Father present at creation. We see the Holy Spirit hovering over the depths. We see the Son present there. When John writes that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was 
God. In eternity past, they were there together, three and one. And that glorious unity continues today, and it will continue on into the eternity to come. Okay, but now having said all of that, let's get back to Haven's initial question in our family devotion. But what exactly does it mean that God is the Trinity? Okay, let me try to sum it up in this way. For eternity, the one true God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who live in a perfect unity of loving fellowship with one another, and who, though three distinct persons, are one God. And the love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have for and experience with one another is so good and so abundant that in his perfect will, God the Father, by the word of the Son and the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, created everything out of nothing. The pinnacle of which was the creation of man and woman, humankind made in God's image, which at least in part means that they were made to enjoy love and to love in return, to enjoy God's love and to love him in return, and to also love and experience the love of one another. But of course, we all sin. And before that even affects our behavior, we see that what that means is that we turn our affection, we turn our love away from God, and we turn it to ourselves, and we turn it to the world, and that leads us to disobedience. But God, because of his great love for us, first gave us his law, which can be summed up in the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love as God loves And he gave us this law so that, one, we could see just how much we fall short of that love. And then, two, how much we need him and his love to come and to change us, which he does. Because, again, because of his great love for us, the Father sent the Son to more fully reveal to us who God is. And then to live a perfect life, to die in our place, paying the penalty for our sin, to be raised to new life in the Spirit, to show that he alone has the power over death, so that we too, by grace, through faith, might be restored to right relationship with the Father and given new life in the Spirit, so that we can enjoy the love that he has intended for us from the moment of creation. And through this work of his Son, he adopts us into his family, the church, and sends the Spirit to us so that we might call him Abba, Father. And now in this new life that we have with him in his family, he calls us to join him, not only in the loving fellowship that he has always experienced within himself for all eternity, but also to the loving mission with which he continues to engage by lovingly pursuing all those who have turned their affection from him in order for us to be the ones to get to share with them the love that we have experienced with him so that they too might be united together with us and with him in love for all eternity. Y'all, that's the gospel. And that's what it means for God to be the Trinity. There is no gospel without the Trinity. And that's also why there is no one like our God. So, Brick Hills, how are we to respond to this glorious truth that God is triune? I want to suggest four ways. And the first one is this. Know the triune God. Know the triune God. That's, that's what he's made you to do, to, to know him, to be known by him. So if you are here today 
and you've never put your faith in the Son, Jesus Christ, for the, gift, for the forgiveness of your sins, so you can be restored to relationship with the Father and given his spirit for your life, then do so today. Trust him today. For those of us who have experienced that already for ourselves, we want to strive to grow in our knowledge of him, to grow to know him more and more. In addition to sending his son, the image of the invisible God, to reveal to us who he, who he is, he's also gifted us his word, the Holy Scriptures, to reveal to us who he is. And it's through our study of his word that we get to know him better and better. And so study his word. And as you do so, pay attention. Where do you see the Father? Where do you see the Son? Where do you see the Spirit? How do the persons of the Trinity of God interact with his people? Meaning, how do they interact with you today? And then also study resources to help you understand. I can't tell you how much I have read and reread in preparation for this sermon today, but I've been especially helped this time through this book right here that I read just a little quote from earlier, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. You can see that it's not a super long book, yet it is theologically rich, but also very winsomely written. I, I've read it and loved it. Many of our pastors read it and loved it. I've forced my small group to read it, and they're at least telling me that they're enjoying it. And so I would encourage you to do so. You will be better for having read this. You will know the Trinity, the triune God more, and you will love and delight in him more. So know the triune God. Also pray to the triune God. Pray to the triune God. When, when we pray, many of us choose kind of a general address toward God. You know, we'll say God or, or Lord when we pray, and that's completely appropriate. After all, when we're praying to God, we're praying to the fullness of his triune nature. The Father, Son, and Spirit are God. The Father, and Son, and Spirit are Lord. So that works. That's great. But also, Jesus taught us to pray our Father. And we see in Acts, Stephen praying directly to Jesus. And it stands to reason that you can also pray directly to the person of the Holy Spirit. So I would challenge you to make that a part of your prayer life as well. Spend some times in prayer praying directly to the persons of the Trinity, to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. It will help you know him more and will inevitably lead you to then the next thing, to love the triune God. Love the triune God. As we come to know him more and fellowship with him more in prayer, we will, as a result, experience his love more, which will prayerfully then lead us to grow in our own love for him. Remember, that's why he made us, that we might know him and the love that he has for us, so that we might then, in return, love him, and in so doing, experience the enjoyment of fellowship with him that he has enjoyed within himself. And then just as he overflows with love for us, so we too might then overflow with his own love so that we can express that as love for others around us, others within the family of God, and then others even outside the family of God, which will lead us to, lastly, to proclaim the triune God. Proclaim the triune God. When we think of God's mission, we sometimes get a picture of general God stepping down from his throne in heaven and standing over a table with the world map there with all the lines of gospel advancement clearly drawn out, sending out his orders to his soldiers in the army of the church, telling them to go forth and to take the land that rightly belongs to him as we advance his kingdom. But I want to offer you a different picture. When you think about the mission of God, picture a father. And a father similar to the father Jesus talked about 
in the parable of the prodigal son. Only this father doesn't stay at home waiting for those who have been lost to him to come back. No, his love is too great. It is bursting forth and overflowing. It will not let him be still. So he goes out in pursuit of those who have turned their affection from him because he loves them so much. And then our older brother, the son, invites all of us, all brothers and sisters, to join them in that work. Out of an abundance of our love for him and to get united together in love for one another and expressing our love for all those out there so that we can see them too united together with us and enjoying the fellowship with him that we are created for for all eternity. And so as we close out our time together, faith family, today, when we leave, let's leave and wonder at God's triune nature, at what he's revealed himself to be as Trinity. But let's also leave an abundance of love for him, for one another within his family, and then for all those who have yet to know that love for themselves.